As I indicated, we use the word game, play, in different ways. We can use it to mean what is only trivial. Play as distinguished from work. And in our culture, we make a very firm differentiation between play and work. If I, you know, I enjoy my work so much that I'm accused very often of not doing any. You know, you write books and you give lectures and you read and all that kind of thing. And uh, that's, that's not really work. It would be if you didn't like it. <laughs> But the assumption is, you see, I, when I want to get away with something and say, well, I have some work to do, that means, well, of course, you're excused, you can go, because it is important that you work. But if I said, well, I have some very important play to do, it, it wouldn't quite go over, you see. <laughs> but the idea is, you see, that uh, you work, and although that's the serious part of life, the objective is it, of it is to get enough money so as to be able to play. And nobody really does because uh, most people I know, they make lots of money. But when they get home, they don't really play. They're either too tired or they watch television. And that's not really playing. That's a kind of non-participative uh, dope addiction. And, but the other thing is that, the reason why we don't play is that we believe playing, we, we can do it just so long as it's good for us. In other words, play is called recreation. That is to say, what gets you in a fitter condition to go back to work. See, work is the objective. So we excuse play and culture and all that kind of thing in that it uh, relaxes us and makes us stronger so that we can be more productive. But you see, if you play in order to do better work, you're not really playing. Because play is the kind of activity which does not have an ulterior motive. It is the kind of activity that is done for its own sake. And according to St. Thomas Aquinas, this is peculiarly characteristic of God. Because he says, uh, quoting the book of Proverbs, where the wisdom of God is personalized and speaks and says that uh, her function is always to play in the presence of the Most High. Uh, unfortunately, the King James, which is a very dignified translation of the Bible, says rejoice, but the Hebrew says play. And so he said that this well, it was a divine activity because whereas work is done for something uh, to serve some purpose he who is all perfection has no purpose there is nothing he needs he ne doesn't need to do any work and therefore the activity of God is supremely playful so in this way One might say that 
the most important thing in human life for one's sanity is to be able to be playful or to be able to do things which are sublimely useless. Where, you see, there is no room in our lives for the useless and for the purposeless in the sense of the word, we are in serious danger of going completely crazy. That was the original idea of Sunday. The, the useless day. The day that was time out. The day when you weren't supposed to do anything serious. It was holiday, holy day. But instead, uh, Sunday has been perverted. And instead of being really time out, it becomes time instead for recreation, so that you'll go back stronger Monday morning, and for laying it on thick in the way of rationality and lectures on the good life. <laughs> so you see there's a little paradox here. It is absolutely necessary for our sanity that we should play and that we should be useless and be preoccupied with useless things from time to time. But we don't do it if we do it because it's good for us. So in the mood of play, one has to get uh, one's mind completely away from the future and the purposes of the future and get into what I would call a musical mood because music is supremely playful in that it doesn't strive for goals. It fulfills itself at every moment of its unfolding even though it has a design, it has patterns, it has uh, movements as with a symphony, it has progressions as with the working out of the pattern of a fugue. But always the point of music is to be with it as it unfolds because if you aren't you miss the melody you don't hear it at all and so then I would look upon this world as a musical phenomenon as a game which is a kind of sublime nonsense just as when uh, Bach uh, writes a line of melody, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't try to imitate the uh, thundering of horses' hooves or the sound of streams or factory whistles and the uprising of the workers or anything like that. It has no social message. It's pure playing with sound, and for this reason, among others, sublime. So then, it would appear that our whole cosmos is a colossal effusion of splendid nonsense. And you can see Every form of life, insects, rabbits, giraffes, elephants, people, bees, flowers, everything, as 
different kinds of music in the same way as you get waltzes, mazurkas, charlestons, swing, uh, every kind of musical form or dance form. So in the way they, those dances differ, so in the same way all species of life differ. They are different tunes, different dances. And the importance of them is not to get somewhere because the only place you can get if you're, if you're going to go somewhere in time is a kind of a reproductive vicious circle. We live to have children who all get put in boxes and come out just the same and they're going to put their children in boxes and so on and so on and so on. Uh, where we are just nothing but a lot of tubes a swallowing food which goes in at one end and out the other and that wears the tube out. And then, but the whole thing is to keep it going by manufacturing new tubes by reproduction and they'll do the same thing and so on and so on. But so long you see as they're all thinking that the point of doing this is that sometime, somehow, something's going to turn up. <laughs> they'll always miss the point. They will always be there rather than here. It's very funny to come to California, you know, when you've lived elsewhere and it's been an ideal and suddenly you wake up and you realize you're, you're there. You know, you're on vacation. You've got there. And uh, everybody else envies you. And so we have to learn how to be there, or rather to be here. Of course, it is always possible to construe the thing in another way and to say, yes, it may be a game, but it's a ghastly game, it's a grim game. It's like a, a child who's caught a fly alive and is picking the wings off it. The universe is that sort of scheme. It's a trap. It's a thing that gives you hope is always dangling possibilities in front of you to keep you going but then it grinds you up and then it revives you a little like a master torturer keeping a person alive in order to experience pain there is a kind of inverted mystical experience that people occasionally have where they see the whole universe as this sort of trap and everything looks crummy uh, people look as if they're made of plastic and aren't really people but only make-believe people they're, they're mechanisms which are going yakety-yak and pretending that they are really there and alive. And everything looks as if it were made of patent leather or enameled tin and uh, just a nasty, dead scene. That's the inverted mystical experience. And one might ask, well, you could take that view too. And here you come to what Albert Camus said, the, the, the fundamentally important philosophical question is whether or not to commit suicide. Now, this is, the, this is the real question. Is the game worth the candle? If you think no, then you better commit suicide. That's the logical thing to do. If, on the other hand, you're not sure then you better, better make up your mind. Because if you're going to go on with the game of life and not be sure as to whether it's really worth going on, you'll make a mess of it. 
That's quite certain. It's like doing something evil, like telling a lie. If you're going to tell a lie at all, you have to make it stick. And so make it good. Don't wobble when you lie. Because someone will find you out. And it'll all fall apart and it'll be worse than if you never did it. So if you make up your mind that you're going to do something evil, you have to have like a golf swing, follow through. And so in the same way with going on living at all. If you're going to gamble, gamble. And so either suicide or gamble seem to me to be the great alternatives of this life. And what will the gamble be? The gamble or the gaming has to rest on the assumption that this game is superb. No other assumption will work. If I may put it in another way, the game is to be trusted. The universe, you yourself, it is fundamentally to be trusted. And this is the act of faith which underlies all gambling. Because if you don't make that assumption as absolutely basic, the game will not work. Now this is where one must consider game theory in relation to ethics. What are the characteristics of a workable game? A viable game, as biologists would call it. A game that is worth the candle. First of all, the game must involve an optimal combination of skill and chance. Or we might say, order and randomness. Where a game is pure chance, it loses interest. Let's just think of tossing coins. The chances are 50-50 always, that it will be either heads or tails. And this becomes very boring. One wants to cheat a little, to liven it up, and so introduce a bit of skill. But where a game depends on pure skill, and especially a very complex kind of skill, it becomes too tiresome. So you could put at opposite ends of a spectrum of games, say tossing coins or tic-tac-toe or something very simple, which is mostly chance, because tic-tac-toe, when you know how to play it, reduces itself to uh, that you either win or draw if you get the first move. At the other end of the scale, a highly complex game like... Uh, well, I've suggested three-dimensional chess, but just imagine three-dimensional go, uh, where you would play on eight boards to give yourself a cube to play in, or whatever number of boards go would be more than that, wouldn't it? Uh, but you would be in such a complex thing that you'd just lose track of it. Eventually, the game would just become totally confused for most people. So we get optimal games in the middle, like uh, bridge, or poker, or checkers, or chess, where there is this interplay of skill and chance. 
So we look for this optimal point where there is a risk, there must be a risk, there must be chance, it mustn't all be predetermined because any game where the result is known is not worth playing. That's to say when in chess the players suddenly realize that white is going to mate in five moves, they abandon the game and say let's begin again. And so in life, that's why a lot of people don't like going to fortune tellers. They don't want to know the future. If I know exactly what's going to happen to me, in a very real sense, I've had it. So let's uh, finish it up and begin again, turn in the check. <laughs> you see, the whole fun of the situation of a game is that you don't know the outcome. And that's why it's worth playing. So then, this is one characteristic of a viable game. A certain combination of skill and chance. Now there's another which is uh, of a much more ethical type and that is I will call it trusting the game because if you don't do this in other words if you won't gamble you won't play and here is the point of the necessity of the gamble that corresponds a little bit to the necessity of having chance as well as skill in any game that really works. But the necessity of gambling is very much overlooked, I think, in our contemporary culture. Because this is a culture where we are trying as much as possible to take the risk out of things. And when the risk is taken out of human relationships, they become impossible. We have, I think, in the United States, a very naive faith in law and in law enforcement. We're always saying there ought to be a law against it, as if law could solve things. And we don't realize uh, the extent to which law makes life increasingly more difficult. Because law is simply a process of trying to define what may be done and what may not be done. But the moment you start talking, uh, the definitions become increasingly complicated. And lawyers love this. They live on it. So it's always an interminable discussion of what did they mean when they said that? What was the intent of this law? And as laws multiply, with the avowed object of protecting us from each other, they do not so much succeed in protecting us as they do in making it impossible for us to act. And so the ultimate police state is, of course, the safe state, the security state, where everybody is checked. And you see what this is? Mechanically speaking, it's a system of very elaborate self-consciousness. See, when you get self-conscious and you watch everything you do, because you're anxious about making a mistake, you'll find in that you're all tied up and you can't act. 
So in exactly the same way, a community of people which is always watching itself through its agents uh, so that, uh, you know, in a Nazi state there are not only the ordinary policemen on the beat but there's a block captain for every area and there's a, some kind of a, of a sneak or a traitor uh, who's going to inform the authorities uh, everywhere, you see, hidden. So this community is watching itself all the time because it's a community that doesn't trust itself. And a community which constantly watches itself is like a person who's always watching himself and holding a club over his head to go clunk the minute he might be in danger of doing something wrong. And so this person is like this. If I say now my right hand is my main active hand and uh, but I don't know whether I can trust it. I don't know what it's going to do. So I've got to keep control on it with my left hand. See? So always the left hand is controlling the right hand. Whatever, if I want to pick something up, the left hand will have to push the right hand down and squeeze the fingers together and then lift it up so it will come up. See, I've lost a hand by doing that. And so in exactly the same way, when any community of people is founded on mutual mistrust, it sort of loses half of itself. It becomes clutched up. It becomes paralyzed and unable to move. So the basis of any community, and thus the basis of any game, is the act of faith that I will gamble. I will bet my life on this scene. And you see, that also is fundamentally not only the attitude of faith, but it's the attitude of love. Love is self-giving. When you love someone, say you fall in love with a member of your opposite sex or whatever, and you got mixed up with someone now. You've really committed yourself to heaven only knows what. Because love is uh, a letting go of direct control. And you might say, uh, going back again to the Christian images of God, that God creates the world by constantly disappearing, giving himself away. This the Hindu would agree with this too. That insofar as everyone here is God in disguise, but doesn't know it, this is because you, as God, are constantly giving yourself away to you. And feeling lost, you know, or how did I get mixed up in this world? Well, unbeknownst to myself, I made a gamble on being this person. And so this giving of oneself away is what's called the divine love. So then, in playing the game, uh, if you don't make the assumption that I can let go of myself in the act of faith and in the act of love, you may just as well commit suicide right now. Because you can't play it on any other basis than that. Any attempt to do so will merely make the whole thing clutch up and become insupportable and will in any case be suicide. See, when we get the ultimate weapon, with which we know we can be safe because nobody else has it. 
just because we wanted to get that ultimate safety and get that ultimate weapon to defeat our enemies, it will be suicide. Because life really is not the avoidance of death. That is, death is the avoidance of death. The constant terror of death, the constant putting it off, the constant uh, vigilance that one will not die, that is death. What we call life is fundamentally willingness to die. Constant jumping of being into not being. So long as you do that, it goes on. So, so long as you shake the dice and you don't know how they're going to come out and flip, it, the game goes on, you see? So long as you take a chance. Now then, sensible people say, of course, uh, that's, that's a very imprudent attitude because you can't be sure. First of all, you can't trust other people. There are some nice people, but most of them are rascals. It's not, it's not wise. And furthermore, you can't trust yourself. Uh, underneath the thin veneer of civilization, uh, you have an unconscious. And as Freud has told us, this unconscious is libidinous. And it's a blind urge of pure animal lust and rage and fear. And so watch out for yourself. You're a, you're a dreadful animal only just barely disciplined and fit to be human. Now it's true, of course, that a lot of people can't be trusted and that so far as oneself is concerned, every one of us has in us what the Hebrews call the Yetzahara. Uh, they say that God made it and put it there. The Yetzahara is the perverse spirit. I call it the element of irreducible rascality. We, we all have that. But in uh, the wisdom of that great moral philosopher Confucius, he included this element of rascality in his definition of human-heartedness. That he put as the crown of all the virtues. It isn't... Uh, the, the word in Chinese is often translated humaneness. But it means a good deal more than that. It means being like a human being. That is to say, a complete man or woman, which includes the angel as well as the animal, reason and the passions, and all those aspects of us. Indeed, the great triumph of humanity is to be able to be uh, both angel and devil, both reasonable and passionate, both mystic and sensualist. For he felt, you see, that the, the, this peculiar combination was the whole beauty of human beings. And he, he would trust that humaneness or that human-heartedness. He would put more reliance on that than he would on virtues, righteousness, programmed behavior. And this is a very wise attitude. It isn't, you see, only the goodness in human beings that is, is to be trusted. They are also to be trusted to be a little bad. They are to be trusted to be selfish. 
Because you know a person who is not frank about selfishness is a big troublemaker. You may go into a situation with high ideals and say, I promise this, I promise that, I promise the other thing, I will be true, I will knock myself out to achieve this, but the reason you said it was to put on a good front at the moment and also to square yourself with your own conscience. You think, well, I, would, I really ought to be that kind of person and I'm going to commit myself to being that. And in that moment you have grossly deceived those who depend on you. Why? Because uh, even if you keep your word and you are reliable to the extent that you said you would be, they are going to absorb from you by a kind of emotional osmosis the fact that you hate doing it. And that's the condition you see very, many uh, an aging parent gets in when some faithful son or daughter uh, surrenders their own life to look after the invalid. Very nice and noble. to the Alan Watts Lecture Series, and we're hearing the game theory of ethics. If you're interested, you can send a self-addressed uh, stamped envelope to WFMU Care of Alan Watts, P.O. Box 2011, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07303, or you can email us, WFMU at WFMU.org. If you want to purchase them, you can go to his website, alanwatts.com, or you can call 1-800-969-2887. Um, if you want to uh, see a list of upcoming programs, you can check our website at wfmu.org uh, slash awatts. And now uh, right back to Game Theory of Ethics uh, by Alan Watts. 
to be selfish to a certain extent and you should for yourself be selfish to a certain extent and make it very plain to others what your wishes are. One of, the, my, one of my best friends is a woman who is invariably outspoken and she is never in, nobody ever treads on her, nobody ever presumes on her because she doesn't let them. She says it's inconvenient for me to have you for dinner or to stay or whatever, uh, I've got something else to do. But the result of this is I'm very fond of her because you know exactly where you are with her. You don't worry about, am I, push, am I imposing or anything like that? You can't impose on it. And it's very, <laughs> it's very refreshing. I like that sort of person. And we have a certain duty, you might say, to be like that to others. Because there is in our nature a, a selfish thing as well as an other-regarding thing, tendency. And it's the two of them together that constitute our nature. And it is this nature that's to be trusted. Therefore, righteous people who ignore that they have this uh, element of irreducible rascality or the Yetzirah uh, are great troublemakers. In fact, they've probably made more trouble in the world than deliberately wicked people. Because they are the people who wage, for example, ideological wars which are not nice wars waged in order to capture the property and the personnel of the enemy, in which case, you know, one always takes care to preserve them. But they are wars waged as a matter of principle, not really between people, but wars between utterly irreconcilable ideas and in such a fight there can be no quarter. There can be no quarter between good and evil because uh, as defined they are mutually exclusive. But when people fight each other they are not good, they are not evil, they are people. And that is why wisdom in settling quarrels is always a matter of compromise. That's why a good Confucian always settles disputes out of court because somebody eventually says, oh, come off it. Look, we are both rascals and there let be honor among thieves. And that's the spirit, you know, that's the real spirit of repentance. Not that you say you, some idiot notion that you're going to turn over a new leaf and kid yourself into the idea that you'll never do a thing like that again. You know very well you will. True repentance is to admit in all humility, you see, that you are not a saint. And therefore, you better not go fooling people that you are because they will rely on you and then be disappointed. So then, this is basic trust in yourself, not as a integrated, mature person, not as uh, a responsible citizen, but as a human being with your light side and with your dark side, with your outgoing affection as well as your ingoing self-affection. Both must be there. 
Now you see then, because of this, as I said, there will always be the risk that although you gamble, you may, you may not always win. In fact, you may lose your shirt. But that's the risk one takes. Life is taking the risk of death. And if you don't take it, you don't go anywhere. You don't even step into your car. So that although there will be mistakes, although you may lose your shirt, the alternative to making this gamble is total loss of freedom, I would say total gravity, total seriousness, no game. That's why all kind of extra square, I would say cubic personalities, are very, very serious. You know, policemen and soldiers and people like that are always very gruff. Uh. <laughs> because that role is expected of them. But when you carry seriousness to its full extent, you've got a cosmic jail. And who is prisoner? Who is warder? Same fellow. But he doesn't know it. Because he won't gamble. And so the ultimate, you see, the ultimate prisoner is the guard. Think of 1984. Think of the super big brother sitting in his inner, inner sanctum. All the security systems outside, all little television things to inspect what people are doing. Checks on checks. Who's the prisoner? See, the spider's caught in its own web. He can't goof off. He can't even sleep. Because somebody might creep in. He can't trust the most trusted guard. Always might be poison. And then, of course, this great electronic age, when every kind of deviltry and snoopery becomes more and more subtle, just think of the possibilities of being the man who controls it all. Now, this also implies that in behaving with each other, in making the gamble, in playing the game of existence, there must also be rules. There is both order and randomness. But you see, the difficulty is that our attitude to the rules of behavior is rather curious. We tend always to derive our game rules from the past. We tend to be uninventive and uncreative in thinking about the rules of the human game and refer back, say, to such an ancient Bronze Age document as the Ten Commandments. 
Now here was a set of game rules for a certain kind of society. But there's somehow the idea, you see, that this set of rules is sacrosanct. Or whatever other set of rules, it might be the laws of Manu or something in India. But always the idea that there is a right way to live, which is somehow laid down like tram lines. There was a young man who said, damn. For it certainly seems that I am a creature that moves in determinate grooves. I'm not even a bus, I'm a tram. <laughs> and you see, we have this idea also about the laws of nature. Although this is not the current, uh, I would say, view of a physicist about the laws of nature, it is traditional in our culture to think of certain rules that have been laid down in advance which the universe obeys. We talk about obeying natural law. And so uh, human law is very often thought of on the same model or vice versa, uh, the law of nature on the model of human laws, that there is an authoritative lawgiver who is grandpa and who says this is the way it's going to be around here and you had better follow. Now, actually, uh, it doesn't seem that nature obeys laws. But rather that, when we watch nature behave and study the regularities in its behavior and write out those regularities down and make notes of them, we find that those regularities can be gambled on. They're liable to go on again. And it's only a kind of... Uh, figure of speech that one talks therefore about the world itself obeying laws. The laws of nature, I mean it's like saying because you've devised a clock and it goes tick tick regularly, you suddenly are astounded to find that the earth in its rotations is obeying the clock. You see, it's actually the clock which is the law thing is obeying the world if anything. But this is the law. That's why we alter our clocks for summertime. Instead of being sensible and getting up an hour earlier, we have to alter the law <laughs> so that we have authority <laughs> for getting up earlier. <coughs> but you see, the rules of human behavior, they're highly necessary because we've got to agree about how we're going to communicate with each other and deal with each other for exactly the same reason that we have to agree about the rules of language. Otherwise we just don't understand each other. But do, do you suppose that the rules of language are fixed and unalterable? We are changing them all the time. We're constantly inventing new words, new forms of expression, getting rid of old ones. We are very creative, especially in this country. People are amazingly creative with language. Where I come from in England, they're not so creative because they're more traditional, more conservative. But here is a wonderfully creative language. And so uh, what happens is that the linguists and the people who make dictionaries, they observe how the people are in fact talking and then they chronicle all that so that everybody is informed through the dictionaries of what rules are being used. Now, the same sort of thing must go with, with morals.
Actually, human beings are always changing morals. But there's a terrific fight constantly goes on between the people who say, well, look, let's try it another way. And the people who say, no, 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 no. Uh, you can't get away with that. It's, it's, it's against the will of God or something. 